five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. back from the journey the journey from the 1970s but more importantly the journey that the carpenters took you to the stars with that's um calling occupants of interplanetary craft you know i always liked that song i remember the first time i heard it i didn't hear it during the time that it was actually um recorded produced heard it later on and i think i heard it on maybe an FM station back in the early eighties. I'm like, this is fucking genius. This song. <laughs> I love this song. Right. And it shows the beauty of Karen Carpenter and her voice, uh, pure, pure voice. And, and just a vibe like Karen Carpenter. I'm sure she was not as pure as the driven snow, but she had that kind of vibe. And her, her brother, Richard, is a weirdo. <laughs> like, that guy's a weirdo. You can just tell. He's got weirdo written all over him. But talented, obviously. Uh, so I played that song for a reason, obviously. Number one, the Carpenters fall into yacht a little bit. I do have a Carpenters track. I have two Carpenters tracks on the deep yacht list. One is a Carpenter's track, and the other is a cover by all bands El Chicano, which is really good. It's an instrumental version of a Carpenter song, which I believe the lyrics were penned by Paul Williams. I think Paul Williams was really in the mix of a lot of these L.A. groups, the Carpenters, Three Dog Night. He even wrote a song for for David Bowie back on the... uh, uh, hunky dory record so paul williams was incredibly prolific by the way if you ever want to watch a bizarre documentary watch the documentary on paul williams it is one of the strangest documentaries i've ever seen it's re- it is really weird um but it's worth it's worth watching it's like one of those documentaries that becomes like the the person making the documentary becomes part of the story in a very like creepy way, a very creepy way. It's, it's, I think it's about an hour and 15, 20 minutes, but it's, it's worth your time. Let's put it that way. So what's going on, everybody. Welcome to another edition of 15 minutes of flame. This is Robert Phoenix. We're back again, sitting here comfortably dockside, uh, waiting for our yacht to be uh, refilled. We got to get some uh, boat gas in there so we can make it out of the harbor. 
the boat gas is actually coffee and I think it should kick in here fairly quickly. Uh, so today's going to be a bit of a different show, although maybe if you listen to the show, maybe not that different. The last few days have been topical. We've, we've looked at what's happened with Liz Cheney. We, you know, we had George Hobbs on yesterday, which was great. And hopefully we'll be able to do that once a month with him, the fact hunter. I went back and I listened to part of that show on his podcast. Boy, the audio quality on Speak Free Radio is tremendous. It's really, really good. So, yeah, we're looking forward to having George back on and getting reports from the homestead and and uh, exchanging notes. That was that was a really good experience. So we'll do that again. Uh, So some very interesting developments in Trump world before we dive into today's show. If you're listening on the podcast side of things, welcome. Uh, apparently, Alex Jones has dumped, he has formally dumped Trump now. The, the divorce is final. It's final. Alex made it known publicly yesterday that he is going to back Ron DeSantis. Why? Because when he looks in Ron DeSantis's eyes, he sees sincerity. Who else said that? Wasn't it? Uh, wasn't it? Wasn't it Bush with with uh, Putin? Didn't Bush say the same thing about Putin when he looked into Putin's eyes? He saw he saw God or something like that. So Alex is firmly on the. Ron train, which goes back to earlier in the week, which which is Ron rising. I, I don't know how, you know, at, at this point, I think Alex Jones doesn't have really anything to lose because he's probably lost a lot. And uh, the other thing that's weird is that Trump has actually been out promoting Democratic candidates. There's one in New York that he has promoted and even had very kind words to say about Jerry Nadler. So there's a weird thing kind of going on now in that world. Like it's so, it's so weird. Like, do you even want to pay attention to it? Right. It's like, what? It's, it's a big WTF kind of moment. But I think the DeSantis thing is interesting because that's where the, that's where the momentum is. That's where it's headed. And you may not like him. You may think that the, the Trump is the banger and has all the the clout, and he does. Trump has a lot of clout. Don't get me wrong. He's got plenty of clout. But even somebody like uh, Delano Squires, who's on, and I respect Delano a lot. I think he's a very bright guy. He's also very religious, but religious in a way that it doesn't make you puke. I like the, I like the religious people that don't make you puke. They don't make you puke, and they don't make you feel guilty. Those are the religious people I like. Well, you might say, well, Robert, you can't have religion without guilt. I don't know about that. I don't know about that. I think you can have a quote-unquote religion with uh, some moral principles and some foundational stuff. But I don't know. I don't know about guilt. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not a big proponent of guilt to uh, motivate people. I don't think it really works. It works up to a point. But what happens with guilt is that it creates all kinds of neuroses, right? It's like, when all these things inside of you, you're, you're fighting against, right? Oh, the joys of being a human on this realm. 
So I just wanted to bring that up because it's topical. It's in the air, right? Delano, like I said, he, he likes DeSantis. He likes DeSantis way more than Trump, right? And I, I think they're, they're both playing for the same team, honestly. I think the same team kind of got tired of Trump. It's like, okay, we're moving on. There's this guy, right? There's this guy. And even DeSantis looks a little like a mob boss. When you really look at him, I think he wears some of those double-breasted suits or, you know, they just look kind of wide on him. He's like a wide body. And he's got the Reagan-esque haircut. So anyway, uh, welcome to the show. We're going to talk about something a little bit, I wouldn't say different because we do this, but um, we're going to talk about a TV series from the 1970s called Space 1999. And while the program only lasted two seasons, the players behind the program, the, the organizational components behind the program, and then how the program itself self-assembles is a really interesting study around this whole idea of programming. And of course, it's a science fiction uh, TV series that emanates from England. And what they were trying to do was they were trying to sort of tap into the Star Trek model, as, as you'll see. But it's always weird with the difference between like things that are English and things that are, are American, you know, like musicals, for instance. For a long time, the English just did not get the whole, I, I'm not a huge musical fan, but the English never got musicals. There, there was, it was just like, like Gilbert and Sullivan you know, all that onomatopoeia stuff. It's like, ooh, whatever. What, what is that? Andrew Lloyd Webber finally comes around and, and changes some of that when he does Jesus Christ Superstar and, you know, about a dozen other famous uh, musicals. But the Americans have always dominated that genre of musicals. They're not even close, right? And even with science fiction, with the exception of, I think, Kubrick. We've stolen Ridley Scott, by the way. He's now officially American. So England, forget about it. Ridley Scott's been here, hung out here too long. So I think he's ours now. But by and large, American science fiction, I think has been uh, more, even though some of the technical stuff, like with Star Wars, they had to go to England in order to do the, like the modeling and stuff like that, which is fine. The English have been very good. And I'm not dissing the English, by the way. I, you know, I love the English. Seeger, who sometimes watches the show, is English, and he's right, right up there. But the Americans, I think, planted the flag earlier with science fiction, starting in the 1950s as a genre. And because Hollywood was here, they just had a leg up in terms of things like special effects. Not all... American science fiction movies had great special effects. But if you go back and watch the first War of the Worlds movie directed by George Powell, that is fucking great. It's like you watch and you go, holy shit, man, this is this is very believable. The special effects for that time were quite good. I'll never forget where the priest goes out there 
though, you know, though I shall not fear, right? Walk through the valley of the shadow of death. And he's got his Bible and the Martians don't give a fuck. And they just <laughs> barbecue him, right? It's like, well, that worked out really well. Uh, and even going back to the original War of the Worlds, Mercury Theater, even though it, uh, uh, I think H.G. Wells was actually, was he there on set? Anyway, War, uh, Orson Wells in the Mercury Theater was the uh, radio theater company that probably made the most significant science fiction broadcast production at that point and to this day still stands out as being one of those things that programs reality because that's what science fiction tends to do it programs reality it gives us a feeling of what the future could be for better or for worse and along the way there's a lot of things that happens in the science fiction realm anytime you go to a movie generally you begin to suspend your your uh, belief, right? You suspend your belief when you go into a movie theater. Like you take a ticket and you make an agreement that once you go in, there's a self that you leave behind that's outside that door. And then once you go in and you are a participant in that dream theater, that you have suspended your belief and now you become part of the thing that is being projected onto the screen in front of you, which is kind of like reality in some ways. And of all the genres, science fiction is the one that probably does the best at getting inside your head because you have to suspend the belief, right? Like if you're watching a love story, uh, you go in, there's a suspension of belief in general, that's what happens. But everything that you're witnessing you're, you're kind of like matching it up with your life in some ways, right? Like emotions that these people have had, you've had projecting onto how other characters might feel, you know, as the movie unfolds. There are things that are familiar. Like let's say the love story takes place in New York City and you've been to New York City or you live in New York City. Oh, I know that building. I've been there or things like that. So there it's it's like you're actually more of a participant you're literally suspending less belief unless the love story is completely out of left field and you have something like a wnba player who's six foot eight who starts a, a, a you know a romance with a dwarf that might be an interesting movie i mean you could cover a lot of bases with that Right. Let's say the NBA player, WNBA player is a BIPOC. And then you have the dwarf uh, and the dwarf, you know, takes care of, you know, your ableist, non-ableist genre. Right. And it's done with such loving care and tender respect for both people and breaks down stereotypes. Right. <laughs> You'd have to really suspend your belief on something like that. Like, OK, well, I guess this could happen. If it's a really good script, now by the end of the movie, you're rooting for him. Like, yeah, go for it. Show the world that, you know, love is love. But with science fiction, you really have to suspend your belief because you're not there, right? It's either taking place on another planet, another timeline. Um, you know, if it's here and rooted in the here and now, 
there are obviously going to be things that are alien or foreign. One of the, I think, more modern versions of this that has been extremely successful is Westworld. You know, people are always quoting like Black Mirror and Westworld. Like, oh, that's right out of Black Mirror. That's a Black Mirror. Oh, that's Westworld. Well, why is that? Because people have to suspend their belief. There are things with Westworld, there are things that are kind of rooted in like 3D reality, but not. But that's why science fiction is so effective because you're letting go of things that you're familiar with. So therefore there's more space inside of you to be able to program or impact your reality. Anyway, we're going to get into that today, but before I do that, let me, uh, let me do what I do here. The first thing I'm going to do, absolute first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to give a shout out to my friend, Chris, uh, who has true hemp science. And I just keep getting more and more uh, compliments on what he's doing. And it's just absolutely great. I wish I had my cell phone. Um, I don't have it with me because that's where the, uh, that's where the latest comment is. And it's just so, so um, sort of complimentary about if, if somebody who's selling you a product because they used to have the, uh, this, this term bedside manner, right? That's, well, that's how you would describe uh, physicians in their bedside manner. But if you could describe somebody who has a product in a bedside manner that is positive and, um, and very helpful, that's how you would describe Chris. That's always what I hear. And this has to do with, uh, and again, when I talk about some of these things, I'm not a doctor. Chris, Christopher is not a doctor, but you know, we're, we're here, we're doing our best to heal in the medical establishment, the medical industry um, has really abandoned us and has become a technocratic tyranny. So if somebody has some uh, insights into alternative health and two people can have a conversation about it, what's, what's wrong with that? Right. What is wrong with the ability to, to do that? Well, that's exactly what happens when you go into true hemp science and you either go through the website or you actually, and people, people have had conversations with Chris, many people. And, you know, I just keep getting, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I turned them on to a friend of mine. This friend has been going through chemotherapy. Right. So they have a discussion and they have, and they, you know, when you go through something like that, that's just stressful to begin with period end of story. And it's really, a, it's just an absolute tragedy. What's happened to uh, modern medicine and care. It's, it's a tragedy. Ultimately it's, it's just become about profit and managing people out. Like we're going to get you real sick early on. We're going to keep you as a customer for life. We got all these drugs. We're going to force feed you, you know, or not force feed you. We're going to feed you. Now it's force feeding. They are force feeding. Anyway, that's not what you get when you connect with uh, True Hemp Science and Chris. Uh, if you go to truehempscience.com backslash ref backslash 23, you go in there and poke around. He's got a lot of really interesting hemp products, CBD products, and he, and he has a few other things. I, I've talked about the fulvic acid, which is very powerful, good stuff. 
you get some of that there. Uh, he's got a kind of a, a variant of MMS that he also produces. And uh, you can pick that up there as well. If you uh, spend $100 on the hemp side of things and put the code 15MINS in your checkout, you get more product. Spend $150, you get free shipping. True hemp science, true CBD. There you go. Support our friend Christopher Lynch. Speaking of support, we got to get another quick uh, support message in for our gal, Lisa. Let's see how she's doing. I think it's like a day left in some of the voting here. I, think, I hope, she, hope she's still kicking ass and taking names. Let's see what we got here. Currently first in their group, 12 hours. I think this is the semifinals right here. Look at that. Chataria put a couple of votes in there for our gal, Lisa, Miss LA Bliss. And let's get a Chatarian on the stage at the Hollywood Bowl. So she can do a shout out to Chataria and actually gift us with $1,000 so we can help somebody come out to the event. How does that sound? Win, 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 win. We're all about the wins here. This is awesome. 12, 21. Let's see if we get it to 12, 21, 21. That would be auspicious, wouldn't it? We've only got about 30 seconds to go. So I just have to talk about it for 30 seconds. By the way, Lisa is also an actress and a comedian. Do they still say that comedian? Or is that sexist now? Aren't they all just comedians? All right, here we go. The countdown to 12, 21, 21. That's auspicious. Right there, right? And five, four, three, two, one. All right, we stopped the share there. How's that? Pretty cool, huh? We're all about synchronicity and timing in these parts of the universe. Let's check in with the best chat room on the whole damn internets. You know who I'm talking about. That's right. I'm talking about Chataria. That's who I'm talking about. That's how you guys are doing. Do you like that, uh, that Carpenter song by any chance? I kind of like that tune. It's very, that's an, you know, that's all pre-MTV too, I think, if I'm not mistaken. What's going on, Ryan? Good to see you. The Commodore is back on the deck. Michael Paffert, good to see you as well, my friend. We're traveling to the moon during space 1999. Yes, indeed, you are. Uh, Michelle, what's going on? Madre Mia. Do you know Padre Pio, the, the famous heretical Catholic did they did they uh, canonize him? The guy who this is always a trip, like Padre Pio, the tales of Padre Pio, and by location. Like there were tales where he would show up in villages healing people while he was still in the monastery. Like if you ever want to go down a really trippy rabbit hole, look at the life of Padre Pio. This guy was so sainted out. He was so sanctified that the Catholic church had to basically lock him up in a monastery because he was just 
you know, stigmata. And he, I mean, the guy was, he, he, he was like the Jimi Hendrix of Catholic saints, or at least at that time. And he was, he was around. This is not somebody who lived in, you know, the theoretical, you know, 15 or 1600s. He passed away in the 20th century. Anyway, I thought it was interesting because he shares the same, same birthday with Ann H., May 25th. And so when you think of bilocation, you think of a Gemini, right? So there you go. It's, it's uh, baked in the stars. Hucklebuck411, what's going on, HB? Good to see you. Anna Sophia. Hello, Anna. It's the beautiful Anna Sophia. A weak replacement for the canceled Star Trek. I, I agree, Hucklebuck. And we're going to get into it. And it's very interesting, the business side of ITV, which was the production company of Space 1999, which means we're going to have to take a look at Sir Lou Grade, also known as Louis Gretkowski. We're going to get into him, his brothers, um, the strange network that they created, literally a network. That's all part of the Space 1999 story. All right, who else? Beth Berry, Double B. What's going on, Beth? Good to see you. Beam me up, Karen. That's funny. But then there's Battlestar Galactic. Started off promising. Um. I think that there was, wasn't there, there was the second Battlestar Galactica was really interesting. The one that came on later in syndication, that was a, that was a really interesting sci-fi show. What's going on, DJMC, my brother? Nice to see you, Michael. Look at that. Michael Pafford and I are on the same proton beam. The original Battlestar Galactica sucked. The later, the later one was better. The best thing about the first Battlestar Galactica was Erin Gray. Although you go back and you look down, and you go, was she even a woman now? Is that a woman? Or were they transing her out too? I mean, that the whole transing has fucked everything up. And I found the weirdest trans channel the other day. And some of it is um, compelling in some regard. And other parts of it are, are not so compelling. It's like, really? You you think that person is, is trans? It's like, oh, everybody's just trans now. Who were they saying that was trans? Oh, J.P. Sears. And there is actually kind of a compelling case that J.P. Sears is trans and wearing a rubber latex mask. And that the baby is supposedly had a baby. Um and the baby's a rubber latex baby. That was kind of interesting. It's like, hmm, hmm, maybe. But then the same channel went on to say that Trace Adkins, the country western music star, is trans. I don't know. All right, let's keep going here. Uh, February 4th, Senator Karen Carpenter fell victim to heart failure brought on by chemical emptying after an eight-year battle with anorexia nervosa. Her brother, Richard, helped create that condition. Um, it was one of the few things we had in the 70s. Yes, the modern version was better. I agree. I agree with you, Hucklebuck. Queen Lisa, what's going on? Roll out the red carpet, the river of blood. Uh, let's see who else we have here. Did Karen really just, just really take a ride on those interplanetary craft? Well, you know how to contact them now. She gave you the she gave you the manual. 
The beautiful one is here. Wendy says, hey, Wendy, speaking of space, Mark M has entered the chatatorium. Good to see you, Mark. I'm watching on Rumble. Oh, hello. <laughs> we got a Rumble watcher. Thanks, Miranda, for stopping in. When will they play the alien card? That's really the one that uh, that they're just kind of holding, right? That's the, the ace in the hole. The ace of spades in the hole. This song is wild, isn't it? I love that tune, actually. And even the, the graphics are... They're primitive by today's standards but kind of compelling in their own way uh who else by the way miranda couch is the intergalactic couch surfer she showed up at just the right time man karen will even boss the extraterrestrial lot that's so funny karen i couldn't think of an anti-karen more of an anti-karen than karen carpenter she's she's the anti-karen Buck Rogers in the 25th century. Oh, was that the one with Aaron Gray? I think that was the one with Aaron Gray. Gil Gerard. Who was the hottie in Battlestar Galactica? Thanks, Hucklebuck, for uh, correcting me on that. Uh, let's see. Even Buck Rogers was kind of goofy. Karen looks normal weight in that video. That was the video effects. Empath is here. Oh, so that's Michael. Already said that. Door to door. There's my man. It is Thursday. I don't know if they need to be our friends. Yeah, I don't know about that. Either. Like how, okay, if you think about hierarchies on the planet, are the really theoretically advanced people on our planet benevolent and friendly? The answer to that is fuck no, they're not. <laughs> they don't care. They don't really care. They're not benevolent and friendly. They may throw you a bone or two every now and then, only if it suits them and um, helps them with their own cause, but why would it be any different with space, theoretical space or interdimensionality? Hierarchies exist everywhere. That's M M I H O. PMSO, what's going on, Janine? Good to see you. Equicentric interplanetary yacht. So I do have a whole genre that is uh, that I'm working on called Space Yacht. Yep, Space Yacht. You could just think of all the wonderful Space Yacht tracks you have to look forward to. We have Space Yacht, we have Dark Yacht. We've got so much yacht in our future. It's, it's almost overindulgence and, and an abundance of Yachty goodness. Uh, the space yacht on the yacht already are the carpenters of that track. Gary Wright, Dreamweaver, 10CC, I am not in love. Alan Parsons, Eye in the Sky. Um, I'm still debating uh, Sweet. Love is like oxygen. I think they might be on the yacht. So look forward to Space Yacht coming at you as soon as we pull the uh, summer yacht into the, uh, into the dock. Let's see who else we have. Paul, Paul Williams is still around. 
let's see who else do we have here. It's Noreen. Noreen is high. I like that. It's very, it's very humble. Lowercase h, lowercase i. I'm afraid fall is coming soon and yacht will have to dock. Oh, I think I just answered that question. Look at that. Tom putting up the deep yacht channel, which I've added to, by the way. Yesterday's show was great. Oh, I'm glad you liked it. I really like George. I really dug that guy. He's living it, right? He's like trading chickens with the Amish. He's got the Amish connection. Uh, let's see, who else do we have? The final, it's final until it isn't. Christine is here. What's going on, Christine? One of these days I'll play Christine 16 by Kiss in order in honor of Christine. Guilt never worked on me. Yeah, guilt, guilt is a real uh, hammer in a lot of people's lives. Timothy Hartful, what's going on, Timothy? Good to see you. Love the women on the show who could change into different animals. Ooh. Quitted already with believing in politicians. We observed their tactics, yes, but believing their... Nobody, nobody is believing in anybody. You just, just take a few steps back, Christine. Just take a few steps back. Take a breath. I'm just telling you. I'm just giving you the landscape. That's all. I'm just giving you the landscape. Two Mules for Sister Sarah. I saw that movie. I saw that movie with my parents in the theater. That was, that was kind of an interesting movie, right? You get... You get the badass Clint Eastwood character, Western Clint Eastwood, and you get Shirley MacLaine pretending she's a nun. And at the end of the movie, she's a body woman, a woman of ill repute. It's funny, yesterday I was on uh, the Ann H trail and I found this weird episode of Will and Grace with Ellen DeGeneres and uh, Grace inherits a car from her dead uncle, George. And then she sells the car to a nun and the nun is played by Ellen DeGeneres. I just thought it was kind of weird. Like there's obviously there's no connection to Anne H in a car, but there kind of is. Right. So then I went down the rabbit hole and I looked at the, uh, cause the car's name is George. I'm like, okay. They literally called the car George. They personified the car. It wasn't like my uncle George, she called it George. And Ellen, uh, as sister Louise won't sell them the car back because she has a, I guess, cheesecake delivery service on the side. She makes cheesecakes and delivers them, and she needs the car. And they want to give her $400 for the car. You know that's a different time when people are selling cars for $400. And uh, the Ellen character, Sister Louise, wants $3,000. And I don't think they actually get the car back. 
So then I did just a quick search for uh, Ellen and George to see if there was any connection there. And then I found this um, weird, it's not weird, but it's, I'm not sure how much content they still have, but there is this website called Overdrive. Now that in and of itself is kind of an interesting name, right? Like Overdrive. And it's actors who um, read books. It's like a, you know, it's like an audio book series and different actors. And Anne H is on there and she's reading two audio books on George Bernard Shaw. And if, you, if you've ever followed George Bernard Shaw's literary output, he's a, he's a total fucking socialist. He's a total socialist. Um, but that's not the weird part. The weird part is um, she narrates her own book and it's, yes, I'm crazy. And she has one of those it's a sideways one-eyed glance and it's on this weird audio book series called Overdrive. And it's just the high stranger on Ann H just, just keeps piling up. All right, let's see who else do we have. I don't like musicals, they get on my nerves. I don't like musicals either, I'll, but I have one caveat with musicals and that's Bob Fosse. I think all that jazz and cabaret are fucking genius. They're genius. He's the only he's the only musical guy I can listen to and watch. Kelly B is here. What's going on, Kelly B? Uh, good to see you. Really, Scott is very talented. He's ours now. Did really Scott ever make a bad movie? Depends on what you think of Thelma and Louise. Uh, let's see. British had Quartermass, Doctor Who, the movie Life Force. Yeah, Doctor Who, an acquired taste. It's it's like the musical version. It's like the, it's it's like Doctor Who is like the Gilbert and Sullivan of science fiction, as far as I'm concerned. And I and I think Doctor Who is kind of endearing. I'm not I'm not dissing Doctor Who. I'm not going to diss Doctor Who. It's endearing, but it's the Gilbert and Sullivan version of science fiction. Let's see. Miranda Couch. Miranda, for being on uh, Rumble, you spent a lot of time on chat. God bless your heart. I'm rereading the sci-fi Red Rising for the third time. Love that book. It would make an awesome movie or TV series. It's about breaking the slavery, uh, chains of slavery and claiming your freedom. I love it. Cool. Uh, let's see. I have no clue what RPM is just talking about. Don't worry. You're, you're, not, uh, you're not alone. I've been told that before. Is anyone aware of the American national status correction process with David Strait? Taze bringing that into the conversation. I'm not, but I'll look it up. What's going on, Nicholas Grimm? Looking forward to seeing you at the event. The young wizard himself has uh, popped into chat. Sarah Hemfling is here. What's going on, Sarah? Chad. Hello, Chad. Good to see you. Welcome to the show. Uh, let's see. Speaking of Yacht Rock, I watched The Love Boat because it makes me happy remembering life in my youth. Who was the bartender? Isaac? He, Isaac. Isaac was the son 
Ted Lang was the son of Jerry Lang. I grew up watching Jerry Lang on local was it CBS or ABC or whatever those local, I think it might've been CBS. And Jerry Lang was always the woman who they hired to do like a 30 minute piece on something in Oakland or something in the Western edition or Hunter's point. Like that was her job. She was that person. And uh, Ted Lang is her son. I like Ted Lang. Uh, what was the, what was that show he was in? That's my mama. That's my mama had Ted Lang and um, Earl, what's his name from uh, Sanford and Son. Great cast. That's my mama. Let's see who else do we have. Uh, so nice. Nice to have you here, Miranda. Thanks for stopping by. Appreciate that. You are the walrus. What's going on? You are. Didn't ITV produce the prisoner and the Muppet show? Chad coming in with the ITV trivia. Absolutely. Battlestar Galactica used Mormon esoterica. Ooh. Chris and Steve, what's going on, Chris? Uh, and Steve. Maury's here, too. I'm going to call you guys today. Star Trek embodied the four lower circuits of consciousness, which relates to the four elements, four suites, four personality types, four nucleotides. So did the Beatles. The Beatles were in there, too. King Pat. Oh, we're being graced by the presence of King Pat. Uh, let's see. Just finished Alana Freeland's Sub Rosa America Tetralogy. Highly recommended by us Krimis. There you go. Gil Gerard is from Arkansas. Gil, Gil had a problem with the bottle. He's an Aquarian. Not all, not all Aquarians have a problem with the bottle, but, you know, Gil did have a problem with the bottle. Uh, let's see. We're almost through chat here. Is there anybody else I missed? I declare yada, yada, dada. I like that. Expecting me to be habitually late, but I'll be here as soon as the yacht closes for the day. Good. Excellent. On the Space 1999 show, I remember women had, that had the powers. No, that's a different show. That is a different show. Reading books is now a superpower. You got, I think you're on to something. I think you're on. JMP is here, and I think we've come to the end of the chat scroll. So I am going to transition into the show. You're all here, President Account for. Thanks for being here. Let's get into a little Space 1999. First of all, I want to uh, bring up the, the photo that I have as the thumbnail. Because the photo in the costumery of Space 1999 are a big part of the story. Let's see if I can find a better picture of that. That's kind of small. Let me go back here. Uh, mm -mm -mm -mm. Mm -mm -mm -mm. 
Oh, they have a new one. Is this a bigger, bigger picture? No, it's even smaller. I need something much bigger. It's a 500. Ah, all right, let's try this one. It's a pretty good picture. There we go. And now I don't want you to, oh my God, block, okay. All right, so here's a, a group photo of the Space 1999 crew. Mark Landau, Barbara Bain, they're married in real life. Of course, you probably know them from their appearance together on the American TV series, Mission Impossible, where uh, Martin Landau played a uh, cosmetic master. He's able to become all these different people. And Martin Landau has a pretty strong history in science fiction. Uh, he was in a number of episodes from The Outer Limits. I'm not sure if he was in The Twilight Zone, but I wouldn't be surprised. So he's got, he's got his uh, feet planted firmly in the uh, sci-fi world. And eventually he winds up doing the Ed Wood movie. He actually plays Ed Wood, and who is a kooky, weird... I, his, I, I think he was, I think Edward was a cross-dresser too, right? If I'm not mistaken. But he had that bizarre movie, Plan 9 from Outer Space, which is generally considered to be one of the best, worst movies of all time. Anyway, look at the outfits. Right? They're all the same. Right? They're all, of course, this is the 1970s, so you're going to get some of this. The only difference in the outfits are the colors on the arms. You can see Mark Landau has black. Uh, she has gold. All these people have red. He's got brown. Of course, we're aiming for diversity. Right? We got a pl plenty of diversity there. So, number one, you have unisex fashion basically everybody's the same the only thing that differentiates them is their sleeve that's important remember that remember that that is important because the person who does the fashion and the, and the costumes for space 1999 comes through barbara bain we're going to look into barbara bain's background a little bit and we're going to look into specifically the designer of the show who has a very, uh, how do I say this, interesting private life and also some interesting beliefs associated with his private life. But before we do that, we're going to get into the creator of Space 1999, and that is... Ultimately, it's not the Andersons. Jerry and B.B. Anderson, they're famous for doing the, you know, the animatronic puppets, right? Like um, Thunderbirds or Go, Fireball XL5, Captain Scarlet and the Mistrons. 
they're, I used to love that shit too. But again, who does that? Like, it's the English that do that. The Americans like, okay, we're not into the puppet thing. At least not like that. But it's kind of charming in its own way. Am I, am I, I think, I, I think I'm right. It's kind of charming in its own way. And so what, what Jerry and BB Anderson would do, let's go to uh, Sir Lou Grade here. What Jerry and BB Anderson would do in conjunction with Sir Lou Grade and ITV is that they would try to create a series that would be picked up and sold to an American network. And they were only successful at doing this once with a mainstream American TV series, and that's Fireball XL5. That was actually, I think, purchased by ABC for one season. But it was like they kept trying to get this hit, right? This hit happening. Uh, it, you know, it was like, okay, we're going to make a record. We're going to make a record. Now, some of the things they did, they were involved with the prisoner and they were also involved with the Avengers and those did become hits and, but they were syndicated and those were not on mainstream TV, but they were very impactful. And the prisoner is loaded. Talk about science fiction. It's loaded with Tavistockian MI5 and MI6 ideas loaded with them. Same with the Avengers. So that gives you an idea. I think they also were involved in The Saint with Roger Moore. So they were producing this stuff. They had um, a, a studio where they did a lot of the science fiction stuff, like the miniatures. They had, they had that studio already. But they also, had, and then they had a, an office in England. And then they had their own American office in New York City. So the, the uh, person who is, Behind ITV is Lou Grade. So let me show you a little bit about how this whole thing works. So uh, Lou Grade, Baron Grade, K-T-S-O-T-J, born Lev Winogradsky. That's his real name. He was born December 25th, 1906, and he died December 13th, 1998. Didn't quite make it to 1999. Almost, Lou. Almost. You were 18 days away. Was a British media proprietor and impresario, originally a dancer and later a talent agent. Grades interest in television production began in 1954 in partnership. He successfully bid for franchises in the newly created ITV network which led to the creation of Associated Television, ATV, having worked for a time. In the United States, he was aware of the potential for the sale of television programming to American networks. The incorporated television company, ITC, commonly known as ITC Entertainment, was formed with this specific objective in mind. Great had some success in this field with such series as Jerry Anderson's many Super Mary Nation series, such as Thunderbirds, Patrick Magoon's The Prisoner. Patrick Magoon was the executive producer of The Prisoner, and that was a spinoff of Secret Agent Man, a series that Patrick Magoon was also in, which I do not think uh, Lou Grade, the right honorable Lou Grade, was involved. And you can see over here 
he was like a Charleston champion or some shit like that. Um, and Jim Henson's the Muppet show. So you don't, you don't get the Muppets with, without Sir Lou grade. There's, there's like some weird shit around the Muppets and even Jim Henson. Maybe we can talk about that some other time. Later grade invested in a feature film and feature film production with several box office failures caused him to lose control of ITC and ultimately resulted in the disestablishment of ATV after it lost its ITV franchise. Now this ATV ITV stuff gets very confusing and there is a reason why. And I'll, I'll, I'll uh, show you. Lou Grade is a Ukrainian. He was born in Tomcak, Toridia, Governate Russian Empire. So we would call that modern day Ukraine. Grade was born in uh, Tokmak, uh, Berdyansky, uh, Uzed, Torida, Governate, Russian Empire. It's a lot. Now Ukraine. Uh, to Isaac and Olga Winogradsky, born in 1912. When Grade was five years old, his Jewish family escaped the pogroms by immigrating from Odessa via Berlin to London and resettled in Shoreditch on Brick Lane in the east end of London. Isaac worked as a trouser presser while his three sons, Grade and his younger brothers, Bernard, later Delfont. So they changed their names. They realized that uh, uh, Wintergradsky is not going to open doors for them. So Lou Grade did the, you know, took out the axe and cut off most of it and just became Lou Grad. We'll show you how he gets the E part. So his brother takes on a completely different name, Bernard Delfont. And then Leslie, I think, winds up becoming uh, a grade as well. Attended the Rochelle Street Elementary School near Shoreditch, where Yiddish was spoken by 90% of the pupils for two years. The Winogradskys lived in rented rooms at the north end of Brick Lane before moving to nearby Boundary Estate at the age of 15. Gray became an agent for a clothing company and shortly afterwards started his own business in 1926. He was declared Charleston. There was a Charleston, not the cha-cha, Charleston, Charleston champion of the world at a dancing competition at Royal Albert Hall. Fred Astaire was one of the judges. Gray subsequently became a professional dancer known by the name Louis Grad. He changed his name to Lou Grade, which came from a Paris reporter's typing error that Grade liked and decided to keep. So went from Grad grade so here this is where he gets connected he was signed as a dancer by joe collins the father of jackie and joan collins decades later the then octogenarian lord grade once danced the charleston at a party of arthur ox uh, Soulsberger gave in new york city of course the Soulsbergers are major media magnets and reality pushers um, in the press here in the United States. Around 1934, Grade went into partnership with Joe Collins and became a talent agent in their company, Collins and Grade. Among their earliest clients was, was the harmonica player, Larry Adler, and the jazz group, Quintet du Hot Club de France. So you can see a pattern here, right? He goes into the talent agency starts looking around who's got some talent, how can I manage them? And how can I, how can I get a cut? Right. That's a, that's a fairly common theme here um, in this world. 
Following the beginning of the Second World War, Gray became involved in arranging entertainment for soldiers in Harrogate. Later joined the British Army. He was discharged after two years with a little problem with swelly knees. It was good old swelly knees. Too bad. But Charleston just took it out of you, which had uh, earlier ended his dancing career. Well, it had recurred. Uh, in 1945, the arrangement with Collins having been terminated, Gray formed a partnership with his brother, Leslie, Lou and Leslie Gray Limited. The brother that year, the brothers traveled to the United States where they developed their entertainment interests, meaning they were making connections. So he connects with two people that are interesting in terms of programming. Number one is Bob Hope, and Bob Hope, um, a noted handler, right? That's what Bob Hope, aside from going to Vietnam, having the Bob Hope comedy specials and the roasts and a regular appearance with Dean Martin, the on the road movies, the subtext with Bob Hope is that he was a handler and a notorious one at that. And right there, who is Bob Hope's name next to? Judy Garland, who you could make a case was being handled, right? And her participation in the Wizard of Oz or Tragic Life, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera later on becoming one of the patron saints of gay culture. So that's who they connect with. Uh, the brothers became the main bookers for artists of artists for the London Palladium in 1948, then managed by Val Parnell for the Moss Empires group owned by the family of Prince Littler. The agency became the most successful in the UK uh, in 1967. It was acquired by EMI for $21 million. So now all of a sudden, the Winogradskis get a major upgrade. So Lou and um, Bernard Delfont and uh, his other brother, Leslie, joined the board of EMI. So now he starts off in television. He was contacted by the manager of singer Joe Stafford uh, that managed Mike Nydorf, who notified him of an advertisement at the time inviting franchise bids the new commercial TV network. So I guess they created a new commercial TV network in England whose media is very controlled, BBC One, BBC Two, right? Um, so Gray gets in on the bidding. Assembling the, a consortium that includes impresarios Val Pardell and Prince Littler, the incorporated television program company soon changed its name to incorporated television company, ITC, known as ITC Entertainment, was formed ITC's bid to be the independent television authority, was rejected on the grounds of its conflict of interest from its prominence uh, and involvement in artist management. So you'll see this, this is what happens with um, a number of people who come from the artist management world and moving into studios they believe that there's a, a conflict of interest, both in, the United, in, in England and in the United States. And eventually those barriers are eradicated. So those two words commingled. What happens when you have the ability to manage people and run a studio? Well, you, you basically have, you know, a dominating force, right? You, you know, you are, the, the de facto um, power in both worlds, right? And, and, and for a long time in Hollywood, that was just, you had to have that separation of church and state. 
but that changed. Okay. Uh, let's see. Here we go. The, now this is where it gets really weird because what happens with the with ITV and ATV and the grades is that they start to create all these weird little subdivisions and subnetworks. And that's not by happenstance because ultimately what I think it lets them do is it lets them move a lot of different money around. And if one of their enterprises is losing money, they can move money from one enterprise into the other enterprise. And again, I have absolutely no evidence around this. The word I was thinking of was monopoly. When you have the ability to take an artist and a studio, bring them together, you have monopoly. Um, but I do think that, that, that they probably, a lot of these networks, Silicon Valley, those are opportunities to launder money all the time. So was that happening with the grades and ITV and ATV? I don't, I don't know. But when you get into that, those networks and sub-networks, you can do just about anything. So you can just see here, the Associated Broadcast Development Company had gained ITA approval for both the London Weekend and Midlands weekday contracts, but it was under Capitalized Grades Consortium, joined with ABD to form what would become Associated Television, reflecting his background in variety, grades, favorite show, and success for the new company was Sunday night at the London Palladium, ran from 55 to 67 and 73 to 74, one of the most popular programs on British television in its day. Grade did not avoid the other end of the cultural spectrum. And in 1958, Sir Ken Clark began to talk about the history of art on television, another way to help program people about what? History, right? Meanwhile, Grade committed the funds for what would become the first transatlantic success of the ITP. You see how this is all becoming very like foggy. You got ITV, ITP, ITC, ABD, ATV. Are you trying to keep you're trying to keep track of this? Well, you're not going to be able to. And there's a reason for that. Meanwhile, uh, Grade committed the funds for what would become the first transatlantic success of the ITP subsidiary, The Adventures of Robin Hood, 1955-1960, commissioned by UK-based American producer Anna Weinstein. ITC became a wholly owned ATV subsidiary in 1957. That same year, ATV established a music publishing division with ATV Music and gained half interest in Pi Records. That's Lloyd Pi. Later, Pi became a wholly owned subsidiary. I think, I think Pi did a lot of novelty records, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, Grade was a deputy managing director of ATV under Val Purnell. So I'm going to skip a lot of this stuff. But eventually, I mean, you can see that um, they had many internationally successful TV series, including Howard Thomas, managing director of ABC Weekend TV, to complain that Grade distributed programming for Birmingham, Alabama, rather than Birmingham, England. So Grade clearly had his eye on uh, America. He did a, so back in the day, there was a, a soap opera called Coronation Street in England. So what Gray did is he wanted to make a working class version of that based out of the Midlands called Crossroads. The much derived, but ultimately serious challenge to Granada series and ratings. So Granada is another uh, independent company that created media. I think still does. 
So now they get into the whole Jerry Anderson thing where you get into this, the animatronics, right? Uh, and then eventually he winds up getting into the Muppets and Jim Henson, um, who was connected to Sesame Street. Uh, he produced the miniseries Jesus of Nazareth. And that was Franco Zeffirelli who had directed it. He got, he resuscitated the Pink Panther franchise. Farewell, My Lovely with uh, uh, Robert Mitchum. Not a bad film, actually. Then he gets into, now this is interesting. He, he makes the, he produces The Boys from Brazil, which is about, about Nazi hunting, right? Uh, and this whole idea that they are creating these genetic experiments in Brazil, you know, creating the, uh, uh, the recreation of the Aryan race, and I think you have Sir Lawrence Olivier as the famed Nazi hunter from that movie. So, you know, he's got some interesting movie projects, to say the least, right? Um, he, had a, he had an absolute disaster of Raise the Titanic in 1980. He did The Legend of Lone Ranger, which was a bomb. But eventually he comes back and has a few hits with On Golden Pond. Sophie's Choice, another film about Germany, the Holocaust, yada, yada, yada. The Dark Crystal is another one of this. And then he gets into the whole Andrew Lloyd Webber thing. So there is the problematic point about all these different subdivisions. So it comes right here. 1966, grades companies were reorganized again to form the Associated Communications Corporation. That year, the Sunday Times investigated the interconnected nature of the companies controlled by Grade and his two brothers, Bernard Delfont and Leslie Grade. Their films effectively amounting to a cartel were agents for most of the talent, major talents in acting as well as the entertainment and controlled theaters in both London and the rest of the UK and ATV was a major provider of televised entertainment. So what they did is they created like a, a, a network of spaghetti that you couldn't unravel. So by doing that, they were able to represent their interests. Remember, there's three brothers, right? You know, where else do you see this model? You see with the Rothschilds. Roth, they're like the Rothschilds of the entertainment business. And so they have, you know, the three brothers and, you know, they're involved in shit and they're involved in shit and they're involved in shit where all their shit is involved together and interconnected and co-mingling and getting into the books and trying to understand, like, who owns what and where the resources are, but at the same time, amassing a monopoly on talent and venue and intellectual properties like TV shows. So that gives you a background on the rise of Sir Lou Grade. Very quickly, basically going coming from Ukraine to becoming knighted. But that's a lot of upward mobility very quickly i'm just i'm just saying can't happen but a lot of upward mobility happening very quickly so what happens with space 1999 is that they had a series called ufo and it lasted two years they, they, have, they have these two-year runs lasted two years and they started to put ufo on in a station i think K, kbc or ktla in la and it was the, the lead-in for um, uh, All in the Family. 
And because people were going to watch all in the family, they just put the channel on. And so they had all these spectacular ratings for UFO and they had already finished the series. It was over, but they had two years worth of programming. So they put it on before, after the news and before all in the family. So they got these major ratings and once all in the family, it was like the last two years of all in the family. And once it stopped, people stopped watching UFO. But by that time, they were like, well, why don't we do another version of UFO? And ultimately, it became Space 1999. That's how Space 1999 gets its genesis. So then the Andersons wind up going to Martin Landau and Barbara Bain. So let's do a quick look at Barbara Bain. And I got I'm really going to have to speed things up here because I don't have enough time in the show. And getting Barbara Bain is a significant, the, the two of them is a significant get uh, for the Andersons. And if you look at Barbara Bain, she just completely aligns with the uh, post-Bolshevik socialist slash liberal slash progressive background. So let's just read this. Uh, Barbara Bain, born Mildred Fogel, is an American actress. She's best known for her role as Cinnamon Carter in the action television series Mission Impossible, which earned her three primetime Emmy Awards, as well as a Golden Globe Award nomination. She also starred as Dr. Helena Russell on the British sci-fi TV series Space 1999, 75-77. Bain has also appeared in films uh, Animals with the Toll Keeper, Panic, Forget Me Not, and On the Rock. So, so this is what we want to look at right here. Bain was born Mildred Fogel in Chicago, Illinois, the daughter of Russian Jew Jewish immigrants. She graduated from University of Illinois with a bachelor's degree in sociology, developed an interest in dance. She moved to New York City, where she studied alongside Martha Graham. Dissatisfied with her career as a dancer, she went into modeling, jobs in Vogue, her, uh, Harper's, and other publications follow. Still uninspired, Bain entered the theater studio to study acting first under Kirk Conway and Lonnie Chapman, progressing to the actor studio where she was instructed by Lee Strasberg. So Lee Strasberg and Stella Adler are significant people in the theater world because they will create what's known as method acting, which we'll get into maybe next week. Bain's first acting role was in Patty Shayefsky's play Middle of the Night, which embarked on a national tour in 1957. The company Bain was a fellow actor and new husband, Martin Landau, the final leg of the tour brought the couple to Los Angeles where they settled permanently. After moving, Bain established herself in the Actors Studio West where she can teach classes and perform scene work. So basically she has a socialist background. That's you know who she is, right? That's what she comes from. So one of the things that is a big um, addition to the show is the guy who does the fashion. And I will show you who does the fashion. Because it's Bain that recommends him and he agrees to do those costumes. It's Rudy Gernreich. So he's born August 8th, 1922, Vienna, Aust Austria. He died on April 21st. 
Rudolf Rudi Gernreich was an Austrian-born American fashion designer whose avant-garde clothing designs are generally regarded as the most innovative and dynamic fashion of the 1960s. He purposefully used fashion design as a social statement to advance sexual freedom, producing clothes that followed the natural form of the female body, freeing them from the constraints of high fashion. So remember, this is the guy that creates the costumery of Space 1999. What do you see? You basically see unisexuality, like earth tone colors, not very sexy. You, you know, there's no cleavage for the women, right? Nothing like that. Women, by the way, in Space 1999 tend to have short hair. The men have semi-longish hair, little facial hair every now and then. But they're, they're going for a unisex look on that show. Everybody's equal, except for the stripe on their arms, right? Um, so we're going to look at some of his fashion here in a second. He designed the first thong bathing suit, unisex clothing, the first swimsuit without a built-in bra, the minimalist, soft, transparent, no bra, the topless monokini. He was a four-time recipient of the Cody American Fashion Critics Award, he produced what is regarded as the first fashion video, Basic Black, William Claxton with Peggy Moffat in 1966. He had a long, unconventional and trend-setting career in the fashion design. He was a founding member and financially supported the early activities of the Mattachine Society. Remember that he was consciously, consciously pushed the boundaries of acceptable fashion and used his designs as an opportunity to comment on social issues and to expand society's perception of what is acceptable. So I'm bringing him into this because his fashions play a role. Like they're a character in that series, right? You get into the whole science fiction thing, you drop your belief, and then you allow these memes, you allow these trends, you allow these ideas to permeate your consciousness, right? So let's get into the early years here. Of course, he's, you know, he's Jewish. He has a Jewish background. Uh, his father uh, was a stocking manufacturer who served in World War I, died by suicide. Uh, Gernreich learned about high fashion from his aunt Hedwig Mueller, who with her husband, Oscar Jelinek, owned a dress shop. He spent many hours in his aunt's shop sketching her designs for Viennese high society. And eventually he winds up going to Hollywood as the German uh, Anschluss, when Nazi Germany is annexed to Austria on 12 March 1938, Hitler, among many other acts, banned nudity. Yeah, so Weimar fucking Republic. Austrian citizens were advocates of exercising nude, a rejection of the over-civilized world. His mother took 16-year-old Rudy and escaped to the United States as Jewish refugees, even though they're Austrian, selling in L.A. to survive his mother baked pastries that Rudy sold door-to-door. -door. His first job was washing bodies to prepare them for autopsy in the morgue of Cedars of Lebanon Hospital. That's an interesting gig. He told Mary Lou Luther, I grew up overnight. I do smile sometimes when people tell me my clothes are so body conscious that I must have studied anatomy. You bet I studied anatomy. He attended Los Angeles City College where he studied art and apprenticed for a 7th Avenue clothing manufacturer. Okay, so that gives you kind of an idea of his background. We're going to get into a little bit of his swimwear designs. So here we go. The unisex costume design from Moonbase Alpha, Rudy Gernreich, right? They're, they're putting 
He's inserting these ideas, his ideas, into this series. What's interesting about Gernreich is his love interest, which happens. There's the monokini. If you're uh, listening, I'm going to describe it to you. You have a bottom that basically starts at the top of the thighs, covers the uh, vulvic region, and then stops just above the mid waistline. And that bottom is uh, suspended or attached by a very thin, almost pendant-like thong that uh, gently glides between the breasts and the breasts are exposed. That's the monokini. So he gets into the whole no bra thing. So he's a sexual liberator. But in space 9099, that's not too sexually liberating unless you're looking at unisex as being sexually liberating. So here's where things get very weird with, I mean, he's kind of weird in general, but his big love interest is Harry Hay. Harry Hay is one of the most notorious men in Hollywood. Uh, he was an American gay rights activist, communist, and labor advocate. He was the co-founder of the Mattachine Society, the first sustained gay rights group in the United States, as well as the Radical Fairies. Harry Hay is one of the founders of NAMBLA. He is one of the early advocates of the man-boy love, and Rudy Gernreich is his boy toy. One of Harry Hay's also notorious romances is with Grandpa Walton, Will Gear, who is another socialist, right? You just see all this stuff, right? It's all there. So now you have Harry Hay and you have this Mattachine Society, punch that up, the, which is the revolt of the homosexual. So Harry Hay is into radical homosexuality. It's not just like, you know, you know, we dig dudes and dudes dig us. And, you know, we're just going to, you know, we're going to, we're going to, we're going to, you know, do that dirty dancing together. That's not what this is about. This is a radical movement to use homosexual networks and ideas to overthrow the dominant culture. And Harry Hay is right at the forefront of this. And Rudy Gernreich is his lover. He's essentially creating fashion to do a number of different things to women, to objectify them, to sexualize them, right? All this is very subversive. And even the unisexuality of Space 1999 is part of this. We're going to project the future where there is no sex. It's all unisex. It's drab, it's bland. Like, there's no hotness on Space 1999 at all. The Mattachine Society was founded in 1950. It was an early national gay rights organization in the United States, perhaps preceded only by Chicago Society of Human Rights. Well, who else is from Chicago? Barbara Bain. Communist labor activist Harry Hay formed the group with a collection of male friends in Los Angeles to protect and improve the rights of gay men. Branches forming other cities, and by 1961, the society had splintered into regional groups. The beginning of gay rights protests, news on Cuban prison work for homosexuals, inspired the Mattachine Society to organize protests at the United Nations and the White House. 
So maybe tomorrow I've got the Friday forecast. I'm not sure what I'm going to do with it yet. And maybe I'll save the rest of this for the Friday forecast and dive into um, Harry Hay and Harry Hay's um, influence on modern culture, which to this day, through the Mattachine Society, is probably animated and more engaged than ever. When you see the LGBTQ plus, the plus is the MAPS people, the minor attracted persons, this all is, the, the genesis of that is Harry Hay and the Mattachine Society. And then the, the, that is the over-influence. The covert influence is through, to some degree, his lover, Rudy Gernreich. And Rudy Gernreich essentially objectifying the American female. Well, and I, I may get into more of that tomorrow. It just, it just depends on how I um, want to slice and dice the Friday forecast. It might be interesting to do that. So I have a loose plan for the show tomorrow. Let's see how it goes. Anyway, that's a little look, just a little bit of a look around this idea of science fiction programming reality. And I'm not even getting into some of the, because honestly, I love science fiction as a kid. I used to watch those Space 1999s. I think they came on on Saturday afternoon, if I'm not mistaken. They bored the shit out of me. Like those shows really bored the shit out of me. Because their, their, their social messaging was really kind of overt. I'm like, eh. eh. Why, can't, why can't it be like Kirk, where Kirk like kisses a hot alien chick? Right? Like, oh, that's, now that I can get behind. And blowing shit up and zapping people, right? You know what always blew me away about Star Trek? When you think about Star Trek, like all this crazy shit happens to them. Like crazy shit. Like they're going through time. They're going to these alien planets. They're losing crew members, right? All this crazy shit. And they never have any trauma about anything. It's like, okay, we're back on the journey again. We're just as normal as can be, ready for the next adventure that's going to blow our fucking minds and sit around and try to explain it to everybody over coffee. Like, that never, ever enters into the, the discussion, like the trauma, the trauma of Star Trek. Never. Science fiction in general, they avoid that. But not all science fiction, by the way. The day after tomorrow, plenty of trauma in that. Okay, thanks for being here. Thanks for kind of going down that rabbit hole a little bit and beginning to look at Rudy Gernreich, Harry Hay, the Mattachine Society, Space 1999, programming, albeit for two years, trying to get that, that program, that meme, that, that uh, social engineering into the collective mindset. So we may pick this up tomorrow over on YouTube. Might be a worthy follow-up. Do a little bit of a two-parter here. All right, thanks for being here. Use your head in order to discern what's real, your heart to say what's possible. I'm Robert Phoenix. Take care and bye for now.